open our Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Now we are in a part two here. We started with a part one. This is a massive sermon that's really the center of the whole book. It's the center of uh, everything in the book, really. Everything is flowing to this chapter. Everything's flowing out of this chapter. What Paul ends up unpacking here is of the highest heights. It's of the greatest glories. It's actually the, what he eventually writes about later. If this doesn't happen, there is no basis for you even standing right now and trusting God. If it didn't happen, you have no basis, there's no hope to even come here to worship. That there's a whole other world has been shut off from us. So this is a tremendous, tremendous sermon, absolutely loaded. How do you begin something like this? It took me a long time this week to figure out how to even get to the essential beauty of the text. It's so overwhelming, and it's so point by point by point, I could not figure out for the longest time how to get my heart and my mind around this. It took me forever Well, I think this is the way we're going to begin. I think we're going to start actually with us, which is a weird way to begin. Now, when I do this, some of you are always thinking when I do this, all right, who is he? Is he talking about me? Did I have a conversation with him and now he's probing me in front of everybody? No, I'm not. If I'm probing anybody, it's my own heart, okay? So know that. Here we go. Barbara's a 30-something-year-old, and she's a married mother, all right? Now, Barbara has a good marriage. She loves her husband. She has three grown children. They're growing children. She's got two rough boys on either side of a darling little princess. Uh, her, ever since she was a little girl, she has been in the church. So she's really known not a day that she hasn't been a part of a church community. Her life is always centered around God. It's always been incorporated with God. It's been around people that believe in God. It's always been about the things of God. And uh, her senior yearbook said this because of her under her picture, and she looks at it today, and it still makes her laugh, uh, most likely to live the perfect life. You know, the most likely to be the first woman pope. She had that kind of a life, okay? Over the last couple of years, though, she began to notice some things about her that began to concern her. Uh, The best way she could describe it is when she went in and was talking to her husband one night, she said, honey, I feel like... I'm hardening. I feel like the kid's Play-Doh when it's left out in the sun. Something's going on with me. Now, the first time she became aware of this hardening was actually a really good day. It was one of those days where the husband came in and said, Honey, I'm taking the kids. I'm going to run some errands. You take a cup of coffee, a bath, a bubble bath, whatever you want to do, enjoy the rest of the day. So she went to her favorite place, her favorite chair, And she sat there. It was one of those rare moments. And she started reflecting on how things are going. And as she began to reflect about her life and her relationship with God, she began to reflect on how she's raising the children. Uh, And as she did, she began to realize she couldn't say this was happening when they were young. But now as she looks back on it, she began to realize that she had almost a compulsive need to control a lot of areas of her children's lives that are important to her. And that began an awakening. And as she began to realize that she had this tendency, she started thinking about where they are now as they're growing, and this sudden anxiety filled her. Because she began to see 
all these holes in their character and their conduct that was not living up to biblical standards. And this overwhelming sense of anxiety of what to do about it overwhelmed her. And she didn't know what to do about it. But what she did do, she continued to do what she's always done and what's been natural to us and instinctive to her. Well, time marched on from that day, as it always does. And she continued in the the natural, instinctive ways of trying to deal with her children's character and their conduct according to the biblical standards that she feels they're falling short of. And so her conversations, if you were to be in her conversations, were pretty typical like this. Her parenting language is stuff like, you know, son, this is not pleasing to the Lord. You're only going to reap God's curses if you keep doing this kind of stuff. She would say stuff like, how do you think God feels about your attitude and your actions right now? You know God sees your heart. You know he sees everything. She'd say things like, are you going to be the the foolish child or the wise child? The wise child gets God's blessings, daughter. The wise child gets God's blessings, son. And she'd say things like this too. Why? Why don't you read your Bible more? Why don't you pray? Why are you not sad for your sin? Son, where's your repentance? Do you want to repent? Not long after these kinds of conversations and long after that time she was sitting in her chair and long after trying to do what's natural to us, to her and reading all the books that talk about how to deal with children and so on and so forth, she began to see herself slide into a depression. And as she was sliding into the depression, the reason why is that she began to realize that she would talk to her children. She began to watch the light go out in their eyes. As she would talk to her children, she realized that their desire for God for the things of God, for his word, to even be around his people, was diminishing. And the one that really got her, is she began to see their desire to get out of the house any way they can. It's like they didn't want to be at home. Now, between her sobs to her husband, the full realization of what was taking place began to hit her. And here's the realization. I don't have the light in my eyes. Honey, I don't have a deep desire for God, for the things of God, and for the church. In other words, honey, I don't possess what I demand of my own children. I'm a hard woman. And I don't know how I got here. And I don't know how to get out. God help me. Barbara had duty. Barbara had rules. Barbara had lists. Barbara had standards. But Barbara did not have love. Barbara did not have joy. Barbara did not have heart. Her good standards never gave her a heart. 
Her good standards never gave her children heart. And this passage is about giving you heart. Do you know that the number one documented reason today for church children leaving the church when they're finally on their own, do you know what the number one documented reason is? Homes like Barbara's. I want, if you're one of those church children that have been out of the church and just happened to stumble in here this morning, this is what I want to say to you. What you're walking away from is not real Christianity. And this passage is here to give you real Christianity. Now, Barbara's. Please hear me. There is hope for you and there is hope for your families because this passage is actually here for you too. And in fact, I know that many of you are sitting there as I do as I sit there and I'm going, ah, ah, oh, oh, where did he say that? Oh, that, yes, uh-huh. Well, here's what I want immediately because I know you're doing that if you're like me. I want you to know why this passage is immediately like you. Before we even read it, will you look over at verse 38? How does that begin? Let it be known to you. Do you see what this passage is about? It wants you to know something. And it's targeting you. And what it wants you to know right off the bat, if you're a Barbara, and if you've been raising your kids like a Barbara, what this passage wants you to know, let it be known to you that through him there's forgiveness of sins. That even right now you can be forgiven. And even right now you can experience forgiveness for the heavy heart that I know you have because of what we just even unpacked just a little bit. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, but look, I'm none of those. I'm not that the church children of Ran, and I'm not a barber this morning. I'm none of that. So am I a bystander to this text? Is this one of those Sundays I actually get to watch? Woo! Yes. And the text says, no, no. The pastor says, no. That's right. The passage says you're included too because what the passage is doing is actually assuming something about each and every one of us in this room right now. It's assuming something about the central drive of your heart right now. It's actually assuming that there is a drive and a pulse and a movement that is essential to who you are right now. And that every one of you are doing it right now. This text assumes that you're seeking to justify your existence around something right now. Now, this something, it breaks out in momentary slices of life. Conversations and relationships. You'll see this, what you're building your life around to justify your existence. It breaks out in conversations. It breaks out in why you're defensive. It breaks out in why you have this overwhelming, insatiable need for acceptance. To be understood, oh, this person misunderstands me. I've got to go make sure they understand me. It breaks out in these slices of life. And it also shows us that there's these dominating directions in our life, major themes in our life that are set because of it. In other words, this passage is saying that you're trying to justify your life or prove yourself 
to yourself, to others, to God. You're trying to find a sense of self in something. You're trying to become yourself in something. You're trying to find a sense of approval in something. You're trying to find happiness and comfort and life in something. This passage assumes that about each and every one of us. And here's the incredible thing about this passage. It wants you to rest, and it's seeking to push you into rest from your ceaseless striving. It's actually seeking to do for you right now what you can't do for yourself and you can't do for your children. Justify you. This is an incredible passage. It's actually the power of God for you. So let's stand for the hearing of God's word. Now we read this all last week. I know it was a little long, so I'm not going to read all of it this week. I'm going to highlight some things, but I will say when we get to verse 30, if I forget, let's read that together. So if you remember and you're the only one, we'll be, we'll, we'll be speaking together. It'll be nice. All right. Now, remember, what's happening is we've left the Isle of Cyprus. Remember the Isle of Cyprus? Remember that was like, oh, poor Paul, he's suffering for Jesus. The Isle of Cyprus sat dead center in the Mediterranean world. It was a a slice or a microcosm of the whole Mediterranean world. The first missionary journey as the gospel breaks the last frontier into the foreign Gentile lands went to a slice of an island that had all the nations in the Mediterranean world represented there. It was the Hawaii of the Mediterranean world. Everyone wanted to go there. Perfect weather, great climate, you know, relaxed, laid-back people. Just going there made you relax. So that's where they went. After they left there, they went 112 miles north up into the Galatian territory. So you know where all the Galatian letters are? This is where that comes from. He's going there. But remember... As we get here, and it says, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, came to Perga and Pamphylia. That's the lowland regions, but they didn't stay there long. Immediately, they went north to 3,600 feet above sea level. If you read Galatians, you know that Paul, something happened to Paul. Some kind of ailment. And most scholars think he, he contracted some sort of malaria that did something to his eyes. Very feverish. So he needed to go north to get to the higher elevations. That's why he didn't stay in these lower lands. Okay. Well, there's many reasons that are, oh, put forward for John leaving, but we know and and John left them. All we know about what Paul says about it is that he described John's leaving as desertion. So it's pretty significant. Something happened here. All right. So John leaves, returns to Jerusalem. But they went on to, from Perga and came to Antioch, Pisidia, 3,600 feet elevation. On the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and prophets, the normal routine of a synagogue service, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up. Here's his introduction. Motioned with his hands. Listen up. So he launches into it. Now what I want you to do, we're going to read. I just want you to see the verbs. Go down to verse 17, God made the people. Or verse 17, God chose Israel. 17, made the people great. Keep going. Over to uh, the end of 17, led them out. 18, put up with them. 19, destroyed seven nations. 17, 8, 19, gave them their land. 20, uh, gave them judges. 
21, gave them Saul. 22, raised up David. 23, brought to Israel a Savior. Do you see what's happening here? I mean, he, he's going through Old Testament history, and it's God did this, 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 God did this. What did you do? Oh, oh, we forgot what he did. Verse 18, he put up with you. Okay, now we go down to 23. Of this man's offspring, David's offspring, now what you need to remember in 2 Samuel 7, David was promised that he would have a son that would sit on the throne of God in the kingdom of God forever. And when Samuel was written to the original audience, that was the farthest thing they could ever imagine because they'd seen David's sons and they stunk. And the kingdom was dividing. The Assyrians had taken the northern kingdom. The Babylonians were threatened to take the southern kingdom. Where in the world is this king and his kingdom? Okay? So it's not just like, oh, it's been just so nice. He promised, he fulfilled. No, it's, it's devastation. It's desert. All right? Now, uh, before his coming, jump over 1,000 years of history from David now to John the Baptist. John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And John, as he was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, the meat of the sermon, and those of you who fear God, has been sent this message of salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets. In other words... Remember, we just heard that every Sabbath they read the prophets. Every Sabbath they read the law. And what he's saying is that those folks, as they were reading them, didn't understand them. And they're read every Sabbath. But by their not understanding them, they fulfilled them. Now that'll blow your mind. By condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Now, look at verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. In other words, all that we just wrote about, all Old Testament history was building to this point. Just so we know, he quotes the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. What? How is Jesus begotten a son? You've got to answer that question. We will. And for this fact, he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. Again, everybody tends to think about, oh, this is, this is about him not seeing decay. No, this has nothing to do with about him not seeing decay. This has everything to do that he went to a world there is no corruption. It's a whole other life. This world is corruption. The other world, no corruption. All right? Uh, I give you, because of his resurrection, I give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David had served his purpose of God in his own generation. He fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the lists and the rules and the laws, even the good ones of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. I'm doing a great work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if someone tells you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Let's read this since we forgot. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible power of what Jesus has done. And so, Lord, we want to say whatever way we're able to say right now. It's not about us. It's all about him. So help us. Help us lift our eyes upon him. Help us lift our hearts. Would you lift our hearts to him? So Holy Spirit, would you come now? Would you enable, equip, empower us so that we're not hearing from the law and the prophets and not understanding? So that when we hear it and we're told it, we actually believe it. Oh Lord, would you speak to each of us, the Barbaras, the church children who've left, and then all of us who sit here even now trying to justify our existence. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. The application of the point in the passage is what? To beg for more. That's the application of the point. And remember, that's not the point. The application of the point is to beg for more. So all this passage is moving is to verse 42. They went out and the people begged that these things might be told them on the next Sabbath. So whatever was told them, it had produced in them a begging. They wanted more. They couldn't get enough. They they wanted to hear more. Their hearts were reached. Their hearts were engaged in what's going on. So the aim of this point... Where the point is moving is to actually move you to beg for more. It's actually to give you heart, even now, for God, the things of God, for your children, in your relationships, to to give you freedom in life, okay? So whatever the point is, it's powerful enough to make you beg for more. Remember I told you that's what scares me about this passage. Will it happen? Will God do that? And then I said, it actually gives me comfort because it's not up to me. So let's just go. Verse 42, we found the, we found the application. We also, we ended last week looking at the sneak preview of the point. We just kind of said, here it is. Here's what did the begging. And we're going to get a sneak preview of it. We're not going to look at the whole. We're going to look at a half of the point. And we saw that the half point came in the introduction to the sermon, and that was verses 17 through 23. This is the Old Testament flyover. And what we saw there is that there is enough attraction and addiction in half this point to leave you begging for more. 
That's what we saw last week. And that's how we ended. Okay? Today we're going to explore the whole point. The whole point that leads to the begging for more. The whole point that actually leads to, say, verse 43. Why Paul says continue in the grace of God. We're going to explore what is this point that did this kind of impact to these people. That's what we're going to look at. Now, I want to notice one thing, though, before we go, is that this passage is telling us that even though you might hear the whole point, you still might not get it. Look at verse 41. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Now, that's a quote that has two references. It's a quote to when people were around at the time of Noah while he was building the ark. And they're being told over and over again, invisible display, something's coming that's not good. Get in to be saved. And they didn't believe it. The other is in Habakkuk. And that's when God says to the people of Israel, he says, I'm going to whistle and I'm going to send my servants, the Babylonians, to come. Because you haven't kept covenant with me. And Israel said, no, you're not going to do that. So what we got here is something so astounding. It's on the level of someone just went out and built this huge ark and set it on the backyard. And we'd all laugh. So that's a temptation here to hear what we're going to hear. All right? All right, so let's get into it. I'm going to tell you the whole point now. I'm going to tell you in one word what it is, and then we've got to feel the force of it. Because the word today, it's, it, it's one of those words today that's lost its meaning, but it's one of those words that we always look at from the outside. When you hear what I'm about to say, here's what we do. We take this word, and we pull it out, and we sit it on a table like a systematic theology, and abstractly we go over here and we... We look over here, and we look over here, and we study its proportions, and then we feel like, great, I've got a rational understanding of this word. But this word actually never is to be treated as an abstraction or something that you look at from the outside. Just like all revelation, it's covenantal, which means it's extremely personal. The way in which you are to see this word that we're going to look at is not from the outside, but from the inside. Ah. This is what it means. Are you ready for the word? Justification. You ready? Y'all excited now? Justification, right? What in the world does that mean? And why in the world would a message boil down to a word like that that's supposed to leave you begging for more? So here's our challenge. If we do see it on the inside, you will beg for more. If you don't see it from the inside, it'll roll right off you like water off a duck's back. Okay? All right. I want you to see what's saying. You've got to find the word first. Look in verse 38 so we know where it is. 
Again, let it be known to you. This is the point. Paul's actually giving you the point of his sermon. Let it be known to you. Notice how it's gone. Let it be known to you, therefore. Therefore, in light of all that I just said, in light of all that I just expounded, all that I just said, therefore, here's my point, Paul's saying. And my point is this. By this man you are justified. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man there are forgiveness of sins are proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which he could not be freed from. The word freed is a translation of the verb to justify. So the literal translation goes like this. And by him everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And I think the NIV has that translation, correct? Correct? Yep, good. Chalk one up for the NIV. That's a better, better translation at that word, word. Now, Paul is saying, by this man you are justified. So now let's enter into it and feel the force of it. Who is this man? By him, by this man, you're justified. Who is he? Well, William Manchester's biography on Churchill. Anybody seen that? The Lion. It's a great biography. I've not read it. Heard it's good. But he notes that Churchill was notorious for being difficult to work for. And he describes one day a manservant who took his life into his own hands and finally got fed up with the way Churchill was treating him and decided to stand up to him. So they got into this blazing argument, and when the argument was over, Churchill said, with his, you know, with his lip jutting out, he said, you were very rude to me, you know. And the servant said to him, yes, but you were very rude to me, too, you know. The servant was seething when he said it. And Churchill grumbled at him and said, yes, but I'm a great man. Now, what do you think the servant said? Most of you are waiting for just this great comeback and this great quip. You know what he said? There was no answer to that. He was a great man. And I knew it, and so did the whole world. The point of Paul's sermon is narrowing you down to a great man. That's his point. Everything in this sermon displays a great man. I mean, if you look at the introduction, the introduction starts and it goes 17, uh, 16 through 23. This is an Old Testament introduction, and it's highlighting a great man. You go into uh, verse 24 and 25, there's this transition from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the guy that's in the transition is John the Baptist. And what does it highlight? A great man. You get into the body of the sermon. The body of the sermon is this man's so great. Everyone around him is saying, he's condemned, he's hung on a tree, cursed in him. He's forsaken by God. And all humankind is saying he is nothing. And God says, he's great. And the way he does, we're going to see. And then the ending of this sermon, you get to let it be known to you. The application, what's supposed to hit you, centers around a great man. Now, why is this great man great? Now we're starting to move on the inside of this word called justification. And the first thing, we get kind of three clues in this text. And I just want to look at these three clues, and then we're going to back out, and we'll be done. 
The three clues, the first one's found in the introduction, verses 16 through 23. What you've got to get about the introduction is this. And I mean, I could go on and on. I wish I could. I can't. I could go on and on about the implications and how you read your Bible that this sermon gives you. This sermon links the whole Old Testament DNA to the DNA of Jesus. In other words, you cannot read your Old Testament rightly. You can't apply your Old Testament rightly. You can't teach it and preach it. You can't theologize it. You can't pastorally care it without having Jesus bleed out of whatever you say in the Old Testament. It's very, very clear. So what we get in the Old Testament is these advanced echoes of his greatness. We get these sneak previews of his greatness. And the one I want to highlight is found in verse 22. There's several of them. We don't have time. We're going to highlight one. Look at verse 22. It happens to do with David. When he had removed him, he raised up David. Now, again, if you think of the Bible in terms of abstractness, you're going to miss it. But if you think of the Bible as highly selective theological material that's historically accurate but interpreted by God, every word placement, every word mentioned is giving you something. That word where it says he raised up Jesus is the exact same word where he says he raised raised up David that he raised up Jesus. That's meant to be seen. Because there are several words for raised and one was picked, okay? Now, it says he raised up Jesus. I mean, he raised up David. In verse 30, it's the same word. He raised up David to be king, all right? Now, what I want you to think about is you've got... This is where, this is where if you're an abstract theologian, you're going to die. Why did he raise David up as king, according to this text? I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And now you you good Protestants are just dying. What? He raised him up because he did his will. And this text says, yes. (laughs) Now you and I know, and we're so thankful in a perverse kind of way. We're thankful that there are other chapters in Samuel and Chronicles other than this great king that does all these tremendous exploits, other than when he's anointed and he does these tremendous obedience, kingly things like killing Goliath and defeating enemies and being a savior prince and doing things like not eating when his men are eating. I mean, doing things like he's so faithful and so honorable, he's got... Hordes of men that will lay down their life for him. Some that will say, overhear him say, man, I wish I could drink from the well of my hometown. Two of his mighty men said, we can arrange that. It's just surrounded by hordes of Philistines, but no big deal. And two men risk their lives, battle their way in, get a cup of water, bring it back to David. That's the kind of man he was. People would lay down their lives for him. He was a man after God's own heart. He did all God's holy will. Almost. He had a little problem with his eyes, then a little problem with his heart, then a little problem with adultery, then murder. But the pattern set 
God only raises kings up who do all his holy will. So the great man, the first clue here is great because he's a man after God's own heart and he does all God's holy will. That's how you know if he's a great man. Second clue, let's go into the Old Testament, New Testament transition, verse 24, 25. John's role is to prepare for the great man, remember? John's one of those bridges. He's called the greatest prophet. Jesus' own words are this. Everyone saw John as a great man. Jesus' own words about him were, there is no man born by a woman who's greater. What an endorsement. He was so great and everybody knew he was so great that everyone in the town was saying, are you the Messiah? That's how great he was. So he sat with one foot in the old era and one foot in the new age. And he was the bridge between the old line of prophets. He was the last old prophet, but he was the first of a new prophet because he was the last one that prepared the way for the king that was coming. So he had this very, very unique position. And as everybody's circulating and talking about his greatness, he has to say, and what's recorded here? It's no accident that this part's recorded. What's it recorded in verse 24, 25? John was finished his course. He said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, one coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. The one coming after me is so great. I'm not worthy to do the most menial task of a servant, which is to untie your master's sandals. I can't even do that. He's so worthy. Second clue. This man is so great that he's worthy above all. That even the lowliest servant can't untie his sandals. Third clue is found in the body of the sermon, verses 26 through 37. And the centerpiece here is the resurrection. We've got that. But here's what we have to do. We have to shift our thinking about the resurrection. Most of our thinking about the resurrection only gets half the point. That's it. But there's a whole point about the resurrection. And the only way you're going to get and I'm going to get from the inside, the whole point about the resurrection is we have to ask, why did God raise him from the dead? And when you ask why God raised him from the dead, you're on your way to getting the whole point of the resurrection. Here's the answer. It's found in verses 27 to 30. I'm just going to highlight some things. Notice that, that he's being condemned. Those are key words. He's being condemned. In other words, he's judged guilty, but it's being shown that he wasn't guilty. So he's judged guilty, but he wasn't guilty. But here's the catch. He's being judged guilty. He's being condemned. He's being executed. And the people that are doing it are fulfilling God's word. Jesus is supposed to die. Jesus was commanded to die. And what's by, by their not seeing who he is, they accomplish what he's supposed to do, which is die. Okay, we keep reading and we find that he's not guilty, but he's executed as being guilty. In other words, he's righteous, but he's treated like he's unrighteous. He's the greatest man who ever lived, but he's treated as if he's abandoned by God. You go down, and that's what the tree means in Deuteronomy. It means a place of cursing, the place of of desolation, the place of abandonment. It's the place that God turns his back on you.
But then God raised him from the dead. And why did God raise him from the dead? Why did God raise a condemned but not guilty, a guilty but really righteous man? The resurrection is the justification of Jesus. Do you know what that means? What that means is that God is publicly declaring Jesus to be righteous. That God is declaring Jesus to have been a man after his own heart that did all his holy will even to the point of death. And when you get to Paul, and Paul says later in another sermon, he says, he obeyed God even to the point of death, therefore God raised him from the dead. What we need to see here is that the resurrection is the justification of Jesus because Jesus is the only righteous one who obeyed God perfectly. Jesus is the second Adam who did what the first Adam didn't do. Jesus is the true Israel that did what the original Israel didn't do. All throughout redemptive history you have, no matter who they are, they rise up, they fail, they can't do it. They can't carry the kingdom of God on their backs. It's too heavy for them. They're imperfect. They're sinful. Somewhere they aren't obedient. And then finally comes a servant, a son, who obeys his father perfectly, even to the bitter end. And while man says he's guilty, God says he's vindicated, he's righteous. He raises him from the dead. And so what we have here is that in Jesus' obedience, his perfect obedience, he's given the kingdom of God. He's given the glory of God. He's given the recreation of God. And that's the point of verse 33. Look at verse 33. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. You've got to ask this question. How in the world can God begotten God? How in the world? Today you become my son. Now that's taken from the Psalms. And that's Psalm 2. And what happened in Psalm 2? It's when David was anointed king over Israel. And what's happening here is that when Jesus raises from the dead, he is exalted and he's seated as king over the kingdom of God. And at that moment, this language is used. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. How does does God, the second person in the Trinity, be begotten by God? The answer is that's not the question. That's not the point. The point is, as a substitute man, as a substitute representative, he obeyed God perfectly. He was the righteous one. And so he is crowned king. And whatever Jesus does... He does in sinner's place. And you, when you trust him, follow him and are justified too. Do you see the difference here? The reason why Jesus is raised from the dead is because he is justified on behalf of those who can't be. So what we have here is, why is this a great man? Because he's the only man that obeyed the word of his father to the bitter end. And because he did, God raised him from the dead and said, here's the kingdom. 
You're the son that sits on the recreation forever and ever and ever. Now we got to end. Church children who left the church, what we need to think, you need to see is that real Christianity is not finding God, gaining God, being connected to God, being connected to his love and his acceptance, being okay with God by being good. Church children that have left, you are not connected to God. You do not get God's love. You do not get his acceptance. You do not get his blessings by being good. You get God, you gain God, you gain his love, you gain his acceptance because someone else was good. That's real Christianity. And so parents and children, let it be known to you that Jesus is the only person who ever He's the only good person, the only righteous person, the only great man who ever lived. He's it. Everything hangs on him. So trusting in his righteousness, his obedience, his perfect life, you're justified. And what that means is, is that you are declared accepted by God. To be justified as God says, you're accepted by me, you're approved by me, you're righteous in my eyes. And so what happens now is this great exchange has taken place. By this great man are you justified. What happens now is that Jesus' righteousness comes to you. Jesus' obedience comes to you. Jesus' perfect life comes to you. You are acceptable to God. You are right with God. You experience His love. You're connected with Him. It's never broken. Barbara's parents that are stuck in trying to justify yourself and trying to justify your children, let the joy of justification transform you. In other words, you and your children are accepted by, by God, by Christ's righteousness alone. Here's what we need to do. You don't need to worry about your, just, your obedience to justify yourself. So you don't need to worry, parent, about you being a good parent in order to get justified. And so you start thinking through, what are the good things parents do? And if I do these good things, then I'm right with God, I'm connected with God. And then we even think, then my kids will be justified. They'll be okay. We need to stop that. No, put that aside. What we need to realize is that Because we're justified, loved, accepted, we're now free to live, free to obey. And the most powerful reason why, out of a joy of grace, out of a real love for God now, because he's done it all. And so what we need to think is this. I want your picture to be this. I want you to picture not a a room in a house. This is the way we usually treat justification. It's a room in a house, and then in this room you got the law, and in this room you got this, and in this room over here you got growth, and in this room over here you got worship, and then here's one room. Okay, I'm in here, I'm justified, see ya, and then you go over here. What you need to see is that justification is the whole house. It's the Christian house. You live in it, always. Loved, 
accepted. So when you go into worship, you're justified. So when you go into parenting, you're justified. You're loved. You're accepted. When you pick up obedience, you do it as a justified person. Do you see the difference? So parents, you need to think through your matter and your manner in parenting. Is the culture of your family this? Is the culture of your home not the rational creed? Because I think everyone mostly believes in justification. So I'm not saying the rational creed of what you believe. I'm talking about what you really believe that's shown in the culture of your home. Is the culture of your home obey to get God, to get his love, to get his acceptance, to get his blessing, to get your love, to get your acceptance, to get your blessing, parent? Or is the culture of your home live freely, joyfully, with heart and life because he loves you? Because you're accepted. Because you're approved. Because he'll never let you go. We're done. Amen.